0: a special
1: season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In the special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into a 9S annual meeting.
2: All right. Welcome to episode three of the social justice special season of neuroethics today disability, neurotechnology, and justice. I am Sarah Garing, your host for today. And in this episode, we'll dig into some questions around access and accessibility, lived expertise, and how neurotechnology can be developed both for and with disabled people. For some perspective on these themes, I'm joined by two wonderful panelists, Jasmine Harris, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: And Ricardo Chavariaga, research associate at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences School of Engineering Center for Artificial Intelligence.
0: Hello, everybody. Glad to be here.
2: So I'm delighted to have this opportunity to serve as a podcast host, and I'm really excited to hear more about your perspectives on this important topic. So I think let's jump right in. We can start off with each of you saying just a little bit about what you do, just to orient listeners to uh, who you are. And then we'll start with the broad question, how do disabled communities relate to social justice and neuroethics? Jasmine, do you wanna start?
1: Absolutely, Sarah, it's my pleasure. So my name is Jasmine Harris. I'm a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. And I am a disability law scholar and an anti-discrimination law scholar. And so I come at this question from two perspectives. The first is from Uh, someone who thinks deeply about aesthetics and the law. And so the perception of society and how they perceive people with disabilities and how that leads to less or more discrimination uh, in practice. And then the second perspective is a broader perspective, uh, one of someone who thinks about disability and privacy and thinks about the role of privacy in the anti-discrimination mission of American disability law. So those are the two perspectives that I bring to this conversation and I'm very excited to be here and have this conversation.
0: And Ricardo, how about you? Yes, I come from an engineering perspective as a researcher who has worked for almost two decades on developing brain-computer interfaces and working on the development of these interfaces and also algorithms that use artificial intelligence and um, my interest in this topic comes from the realization of uh, this certain disconnection between the way the research is done and the end users that these technologies are supposed to serve how a large part of research is done without the involvement of people with disabilities uh, when there are are these involvements uh, very frequently is mostly as um, subjects in uh, research studies uh, but not necessarily in a co-development process which uh, somehow makes us researchers and tech developers disconnected of the perceptions, the experience and the actual needs of, um, of people with disabilities and, and therefore despite uh, the, and this disconnection in the research and development process from the intended users is not only an ethical aspect of how these technologies are developed but also constitutes a roadblock on the advancement of these technologies because despite the perception of uh, technology and science going very fast and advancing very fast when we do so, disconnected from the intended users, our solutions are not adequate to fulfill their needs and to um, actually achieve their purpose. And the impact that we are uh, generating is, in that case, not not advancing at the same pace, and the people are not being served in the proper way. Great, thank you. Uh,
2: so many things
0: I already want to ask. Um, maybe just to start, Jasmine, can you
2: say a little bit more about the? point about aesthetics in the law or about how society perceives uh, disabled people and how that affects then how we think about anti-discrimination law. For listeners who might not be aware of some of the background that you know, can you fill us in a little bit?
1: Absolutely. So one of the most fascinating parts of, of getting to study aesthetics and philosophy in the law is to think about the role of art and art history and how we perceive which bodies matter, which bodies are beautiful, and how that is reinforced by the law itself. And the perfect example of this intersection of aesthetics and law is actually the work of Sue Schweck over at the University of California, Berkeley, and the work she's done around what she calls the ugly laws, which are these public nuisance ordinances that date back into the 1800s that basically policed the visible presence of disability in public spaces. And so the notion of aesthetics, what is considered beautiful, horrid, uh, uh, disgusting, what I've argued in my work in the law is that these principles really relate deeply to what anti-discrimination law can and cannot do. It relates to what it can do in the sense that policing what's in front of you, thinking about ugly laws, those themselves are barriers to justice. But it also talks about what the law cannot do, which is thinking about the deep social norms of disability and seeing disability as deviant, seeing disability as less than deficient. And these are all principles, to relate it back to this conversation, these are all principles that go into the design of tech, into principles of whether someone is going to use the technology either because they themselves do not see the technology as useful or they don't want to meet the baseline norm of society. And for example, with prosthesis, using a prosthetic so that you look able-bodied may not be something that someone with a disability wants to do, one. Or two, the design of that technology maybe just reinforcing ableist norms of what is beautiful, what is deviant, what is acceptable. So I'll I'll stop there for a moment, see if there are any follow-up questions too. That's
2: fantastic. That's what I was looking for. And I, I want to go back to Ricardo for, for a moment because you said, you know, without uh, bringing disabled people in as co-developers of technology, um, there's a roadblock to technology advancement. You know, prosthetics are one example, sort of you know, norms of functioning that um, a non-disabled tech developer might believe everyone wants to approximate or gain might not be widely shared or as widely shared. Do you have other examples, Ricardo, uh, thinking in history or thinking in things that are, you know, tech development going on right now where you think this is the norm of practice, but here's what it might look like uh, if we started to shift that norm. And then I want to welcome Gregor Wolbring, who's joined us on the conversation, and I'll invite you to chime in on this right after Ricardo, Gregor.
0: It's a very, very interesting point on how do do we relate to the technology and how the... Certain ideals of of uh, aesthetics have a strong influence on on the on the technology, how it is designed, what are the the elements that are included, and rather than giving a specific example uh, like prosthetics that can be seen in very general ways from from uh, limb replacements to also more, say, less evident um, type of prosthesis like um, hearing implants or retinal prosthesis. I think an important point to to consider here is how the demographics of people who develop the technology can influence the, the technology itself, how does it look, and with what type of bodies they work. And uh, you can imagine aspects on how the fitting of certain elements, certain sensors, can can be done with, um, with uh, different types of body. This can be in terms of the, the weight, size, or even the, the type of skin. We do see differences in the quality of signal that can be measured. It can be on one very simple example, not related to disability. But with uh, with with race is how EEG sensors, electroencephalography sensors that are put not invasively, not invasively on the on the scalp, they don't uh, work well with certain hairstyles. And an example of these hairstyles is redlocks. And uh, when we look at uh, the, the demographics that use this, uh, uh, of that, that most commonly you have these type of hairstyles, we see a a a potential imbalance on who can have access or not to these technologies so there is an an aspect of the aesthetics but there is also an aspect of who develops these technologies what are the the types of bodies the aesthetics that, that these developers are most commonly used to and this creates blind spots in certain cases that lead to discrimination in who can use or not these technologies.
2: I'll go quickly back to Jasmine, who I think has another point on this, and then I'm gonna introduce Gregor more fully.
1: Thanks, Sarah. The, the other point really is a, a point that jumps off of what Ricardo just said, which is when we think of aesthetics, it's not just the visible part of the aesthetics, but it's also behavioral. And so when we're talking about technology and the fusion, quite literally at times of technology and the body, we also have to think about what are the reasons for this type of technology. And sometimes it's therapeutic, sometimes it's about behavioral management or behavioral changes. And so I go back to that point about what is the governing norm of what is acceptable behavior. And it relates to what Ricardo was saying in terms of race and thinking about the intersection of these questions and race and how certain populations are characterized as having uh, more deviant behavior and disproportionately might be subject to this type of technology in a controlling manner. So not in terms of improving quality of life uh, in a positive way as defined by the individual, but more as quality of life defined by society. So I wanted to make sure that aesthetics has, and in my research, it has that both visible uh, uh, component, but also behavioral. Thanks. That's, that's great. Um, I do want to
2: bring in Gregor Wolbring now, who's joined us. Gregor is professor of community health uh, sciences services at the University of Calgary. Gregor, do you want to just say a little bit about who you are and what your work is, and then start with this broad question, how do disabled communities relate to social justice and neuroethics? Very big question, <laughs> but you only get a little time to get started.
3: I mean, I'm working for a long time on right, a variety of technologies because neuro obviously is only one area, and I use ability studies as my main right lens nowadays, right? I've been for a while. So it's not so much about disability studies as in uh, it impacts disabled people because I find this increasingly ghettoing me as if it's right. I mean. I think ability studies is, I think, more encompassing with the meaning of abilities are set by certain people and they set the stage. Right? We expect certain abilities and with that, then the rest is literally like a flow diagram, right? You set a certain ability as a premise and then the rest is flowing. And that ability judgment, everyone is experiencing. This is not just disabled people. Women is indigenous people. I mean, everyone is judged by certain abilities, and they're different in different cultures. And neurotechnologies, obviously, and ethics, neuroethics play a role in here in the same way as it's a man, right? I mean, AI ethics, the same as bioethics and so on, and other technologies, right? Which abilities they are on the one hand enable to be developed, which abilities they are privileging over others, and also, I mean, certain abilities push for certain technologies, right? It goes both ways. And I better stop here.
2: Thanks, Gregor. That um, raises this issue of thinking about ability studies and thinking about ableism Mm -hmm. uh, because I think, you know, look hearing from Jasmine and thinking about anti-discrimination law, there's a, a big push to try to make sure that or hopefully there will be a big push to make sure that new technologies, advancing new neurotechnologies, technologies, um, don't contribute to exacerbate or <laughs> perpetuate uh, ableism. But underlying that ableism is a very narrow view of what abilities are relevant right, or what abilities are worth pursuing. Ricardo was just saying, one of the things we really have to do is have this broader participation in um, thinking about development of technologies. Given what you just said about ability studies, would you say the aim then isn't particularly disabled people as co-developers, but the public as co-developers, right? So that it's not, in your language, ghettoizing the the disabled communities, but rather just thinking about what abilities are broadly worth pursuing through technology, I guess, is the way to put that.
3: I would say yes. Um, when, right, I mean, COVID is, is a prime example. It's thrown us into a sprite, all by a to use certain technologies we could use, which, I mean, enabled certain people, disabled other people. Um, and we see now the narrative with certain people with certain ability agendas to, in some markets, to move it back. In other markets, trying to keep it, and the the ability privileges, I mean, then right COVID, I mean, unearthed or made visible, which were uh, fixed for certain groups and not so much fixed for others. I mean, that was not disability per se. For example, online conferences or what we're doing here in the moment, right? Being on Zoom. Um, that on the one hand was enabling for a lot of disabled people, right? But also for like, like, let's say academics in low-income countries, right? Who could not afford to travel, or people who um, needed visas, and right? And because of the bureaucracy, could never go to certain conferences in certain places. So the ability, right? Uh, and and then at the same time. Right? You were judged how many conferences you attended and so on, right? So the ability had, I mean, impacted everyone or, or use an example with the bus to be a little bit more mundane, right? An accessible bus was never about the wheelchair. At least the disability community never felt like that. It was enabling all kinds of people, right? But you made it something special for disabled people. Right, like, oh, look at that. We gave you the accommodation now of a right accessible bus. Right, or we give you the accessible washroom. But of course, the building code itself is a accommodation for the ability normative body, which then they take for granted that they can do certain things if you have, let's say, legs. And if you have a wheelchair, you get right, your special needs accommodated, right? So that's why, I mean, ability judgments are everywhere. And when you go back to the, into the 70s, the, wheel sh- the washroom for women was actually, there was the same language around it than we have today around the washroom for wheelchairs, right? It was because it was m- mostly washrooms for men, right? Because there were not enough women in certain positions. And that was seen then as an accommodation, how great now we're making a washroom for women. We are just a little bit behind. So the abilities and with technologies, including right what we do now here, um, the virtual stuff, or when we look at, for example, Facebook versus Metaverse and so on, which why do we develop them? Which abilities do we want to push forward? And then who can benefit from them and who can't? That is a, a much right. So disabled people are one group, at least. Right, certain disabled people, and they are indeed the disabled, they are so big, right, the group, I mean, you can't judge me in a wheelchair, and we don't, right, in the same way as someone who's neurodiverse, they have totally different profiles, ability profiles, what benefits them, what disables them, right, what kind of mechanisms, and we saw all the disabled all together. Right, someone with pain, right, back pain, or someone who can't sit for a long time, or right, we could go on and on, right? And then we have the poor disabled people as in no income, right? I mean, who can't even afford internet and will never be able to afford the metaverse and, and so on. So there are so many issues. So it really has to be broader than just we take some disabled person. Uh, And then we have them for our design of, so that they have access because literally all of them. And then it has to be also socially accessible, not just physically accessible, right? And I'm not so sure we do that. I mean, it's often, and you use someone, so we make the buttons big enough so you can press them. And that would fall short for me, what I would even see as inclusive design.
2: I want, that's, yeah, it's helpful. I, you know, I think about efforts toward universal design, Mm -hmm. which can capture this sense that it shouldn't matter the particular um, bodily type or mode of functioning. If it's properly designed, people with very different modes of functioning can benefit and make use of a college classroom, right? Or a particular technology. And that seems admirable. I guess I worry a little, or I'm curious to hear from the other panelists too, you know, how, when we go about doing that, (laughs) um, there are still going to be people who get left, right? We are still going to be making value judgments about what is essential to the college classroom experience or something like, right? And then who is the we who does that? And I think that maybe goes back a bit to Ricardo's point in thinking about who is already represented in technology design and who is not commonly represented. So there's a different path to that same end that might help capture some of the points that you were making just now, Gregor, about ability studies and how this isn't just or even maybe primarily about disability, but about ability per se. Ricardo, I'm curious to to hear from you. What do you think about this um, point from Gregor about it not being sufficient just to be inclusive of disabled people as co-developers in the design process.
0: Well, I, I, I entirely agree uh, but I, I probably wouldn't or put it that way that it's not, um, not uh, enough to, to include people with disabilities but rather that there is no such thing as a monolithic group um, called people with disabilities. So if uh, if we think about inclusivity and and say okay we have to to include uh, someone with disabilities uh, in for co-development and who will be this person what kind of abilities this person will represent or what kind of information can we uh, can we exchange uh, and at the end of the day who will be best served by the work that we do with that particular person or people who are involved and I guess that's a that's part of the discussion and and I guess in, an important point to also that I will I entirely agree is that it shouldn't be seen as making accommodations to a particular a group of people but rather what is the the purpose or the ability that a given a given system should provide if I think about the the, the work that I'm more, mostly involved with, for instance, with breaking the is what are the type of functionalities that a given system should provide and the means of interaction and the type of processes uh, and somehow attach it with a specific profile of users will be entirely beneficial for uh, for several reasons. One is that there is not this uh, specific... Um, Say a stereotypical user that I can that I can identify and say if I design for that uh, stereotype, I will get a system that works for for everybody. So if I go in that direction, I will definitely fail at the end of the day. So we need to design for for the diversity of the population that we are addressing at different levels. And uh, I think it is if uh, another risk that we do by doing it so is to a actually fit this ghettoization that was mentioned before we see it in um, in uh, in healthcare we have the issue of neglected diseases and if we go in the to develop neurotechnologies with specific profiles in mind, we may end up creating also other neglected cases of disability that are not well served by the the, the technologies that we develop. And uh, from a more technical perspective, I think that uh, we take a broader approach of um, Looking at the functionality itself and the abilities that would like to be provided with a more ample base of users, we can as well help on having more affordable technologies instead of having a Say, bespoke interfaces for every single particular uh, profile. From the technological point of view, of course, customization is required, and that will be part of the design how to customize. But at the same time, we cannot expect the technology to be entirely uh, designed for every specific uh, individual because that will be most likely impossible to find an, uh, a proper model in the current um, in the current economical uh, system that we have that will give uh, accessibility to all of them so i think that having a more broader aspect of the uh, or broader perception of what do the the users constitute and these users may not necessarily be tagged as someone with disability or of, with a given disability. But in, in several cases, as it was mentioned before, with a larger group, we can also help not only with addressing the needs of uh, different people, but also contributing to the accessibility.
2: Yeah, that seems important when you think about the just the diversification of the research team, even just the simple um, examples like you raised before, Ricardo, you know, if the external... EEG recording <laughs> equipment doesn't work on dreadlocks. If you have somebody who has a different skin tone, non-common in the lab but otherwise that led us to this point, then you're gonna recognize that much earlier, right? That just diversifying the research team will allow for awareness, not only of the big value judgments, just but just also about what works and doesn't work to, so that you can have a more universally designed kind
0: of um, device.
2: Yeah, Ricardo, do you want to jump in again?
0: Yes, I think another point when when we talk about involvement of of a diverse group in the development of technologies that should be always kept in mind is that this involvement should be continuous. That uh, it's not just having someone to come once... uh, and check where the status of a prototype or to go with surveys uh, at the beginning of the project and ask a few questions and never come back again. I think the, the, the key point is this constant involvement because the, the, the technology goes through several iterations and these iterations needs to be validated. Uh, the, the decisions that are taken through this process have to to be informed by the different perspectives and one of the mistakes that is uh, that is done I mentioned before we have sometimes only as uh, uh, subjects in a a research study or by certain tests but there is no follow-up there is not a continuous uh, process on that involvement and there is here I, I should mention there is of course a a flaw on the way that we do research and we as researchers should recognize and acknowledge that sometimes but i think there is also an issue of the incentives and the funding mechanisms that exist today for the development of these technologies where a this say long-term process of stakeholder involvement of validation of uh, systems that probably some people may claim that they are they are no longer research because the first prototype was already been done, but that then we need to validate it with a larger population, with a diverse population, then we start having much more uh, problems to get the resources that are required for doing such type of work. And I guess that's that's one of the, the aspects that needs to be to be considered in the in the current way that the, the research is done in this particular field of lotologies.
2: Yeah, I know in some of my early work with the Center for Neurotechnology, I heard from a rehab physician who said, you know, what we don't want is engineers coming down with the whiz bang cool new thing and saying, could anybody use this? What do you think? What do you think? So the idea of um, more continuous, and I would add, you know, a different kind of power sharing. So it's not just about checking with a stakeholder slash potential end user, but also thinking of the group as a team that designed something that could be beneficial widely for multiple abilities, as Gregor was saying.
3: One of our studies, we interviewed teachers in special ed around brain-computer interfaces. And they were saying that um, they were very iffy of having it, not so much because of the technology, but they're saying, if the disabled person Right, who before was bullied because they didn't cut it. They felt then it's right all by sudden when they outperform the bullies, that doesn't get over too well with the bully either. Right, and then they feared for a narrative about what we know the nerd, the geek, right, against something. So, if I mean, right. For disabled people who, right, who already get bullied because they don't fit certain things, right? I mean, just the technology by itself will not fix it, right? And we can definitely, right, we see brain-computer interfaces, I mean, the non-invasive ones, they will become better. They might help, they might give certain abilities. um, And then maybe the bully can't access them or the bully doesn't want that this person loses the, Narrative of can't cut it, and so and that the technology can't fix, and that also can't be fixed by, I mean, involving them in the design. So we need literally a parallel to the design, and right also then a whole narrative around, right, that we accept people with whatever abilities they have, right, and that's for all technologies. That's nothing specific to to like a brain-computer interface.
2: Yeah, that seems right. I mean, I think sometimes within the technology world, we get so focused on technology that we just think this is the thing or these are the thing. But of course, there's all this stuff Jasmine was talking about at the beginning about just social perceptions of different abilities, different bodies, different beauty and bodies, right, that itself may shift in some ways in response to technology, but it's it we know that there are these entrenchments that are very difficult. They can, they can shift to adjust to the new technology as well. Jasmine, did you wanna jump in?
1: Just quickly, I wanted to pick up on Ricardo's point about the research and thinking in your point as well, Sarah, about rethinking the whole process itself and really following a participatory research approach. And that's that's really different. And that's gonna require a lot of changes down to how much money is allocated, how much time does it take for this process. But the incentive structure, which Ricardo mentioned, that's key. So how do you think about the people who are no longer just end users, but who are co-participants, in the technology, what does that mean for their stake in the technology itself? Are there ways to reallocate, and this goes to your PowerPoint, not only the power dynamic, but shifting the the financial incentives, the other structures, the uh, um, potential ownership structures in the, the technology. Now these seem really radical in terms of responses, but it's being done in some places and you know, it's not kind of the the model that has been used to date, but certainly as we're rethinking the idea of what this should look like, it should be on the table to consider how do you allocate uh, ownership um, shares and structures and and rethinking the risk that individuals take on as part of the calculus as well.
2: That's a, actually thank you. That's a great segue into my next question, which was. You know, we've talked about um, sort of broadening um, the, the research team in order to have a more diverse perspective and think more broadly about abilities. Um, I also wonder if there are times when we worry that broadly the public fails to pay attention to some things that matter. So I wanna raise the question about privacy because I think each of you will have interesting Additions to to put in here. You know there are lots of ways that we share our data, very intimate data sometimes, without fully realizing what we're doing. Even though there are the um, performances of, you know, end user licensing agreements or other things that we click on ostensibly to recognize that we're willing to share. And I think when we look at some neurotechnologies anyway there's a worry that there's even more intimate data to be made available or to be interpreted because i don't think you can read it directly from the neural recordings how would you address those wor- those issues cuz i worry a little bit that we might and i've seen this in some of the work that our our group has done too that we might have you know a fair number of people come in and say i just i'm not that worried i don't have anything to hide and I always want to say, but it's not about hiding; it's about preserving access and intimacy, so that not everybody has, you know, what's what's going on inside. So, in a situation like that, how how do you think about the benefits of broadening the the team, and then the potential for even with that missing some of the values that at least some of us are worried about what happens when we lose them? Gregor, do you want to start?
3: yeah I think this is I mean right around for example, how Facebook was used or is used, and so on, and there's definitely the might whole generation right I mean I'm much more iffy what I put online, and the younger ones or what you put on Twitter, right I mean, there seems to be a certain group who has no problems putting everything online without well maybe without understanding or don't caring. That it can, I mean, right. Whatever is there is there forever. I mean, uh, right. Someone will dig it out twenty years down <laughs> and find it somewhere. And if you do this neuro, depending what you're generating, I mean, the chart, right. I, on the one end, it should be okay if you want to share, share, right. I mean, I can't say not that you don't share. it. But if I don't want to share it, if I don't want to do it, then yeah, you don't do it. Question is whether you eventually have the choice. I mean to do so, and that's again. I mean, the technology itself can't police that or organize that. This is again around the other areas like neuroethics who we'll make sure that the societal framework around it is such that again, I mean that that not something becomes an expectation, right? Like uh, like okay, you have to be an exhibitionist, or you have to right, we have to know X, Y, Z and that's why new ethics is important any ethics is important any kind of social accompanying right social i mean right social consequence or whatever you want to call it accompanying of the technology development and why do we push for it which abilities does it privilege do people but by knowing the private stuff i mean does it give so much of an advantage that it literally becomes the norm right, and becomes the expected behavior pattern, right, and then, and who would benefit from that and so on. That is all part of the, the development right from the beginning, right. Um, and and I assume that's, I mean, right, from what I can see, that's what neuroethics is asking. And I mean, and we it, do this on Facebook for a long time, um, right, but people, I still remember with Ian Kerr, from the University of Ottawa, where we had a panel with young people on, on privacy and what to do with Facebook. And they just all saying, well, if someone wants a man to find me, they can find me anyway. So it doesn't matter whether I put everything online. Right? Um, but then the question is whether that is really just not knowing enough, whether the literacy of what can happen to you. And that literally you have to start with that then very early on Well, literally elementary school, more or less, right? That certain things come with consequences and that would be the same, right? I would assume, depending what technology you are having in mind here, I mean, I would assume it would be the same with this one.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, just the generational divide seems like part of it, but also people are so differently positioned. And Mm -hmm. I guess really I am, Wondering if, you know, in thinking about this diversification of research teams, we think, well, if, if we do a good job at that, there are ways in which you'll have people who are trained in such a way, inclined in such a way, so that they're envisioning the problematic consequences that may come much farther down the line, as Gregor was saying, that, you know, doesn't get you the speedy access to the game or whatever it is that you're looking for, the the connection. Um, Jasmine, do you want to say more about this? Because I know you've worked on uh, disability and privacy, too.
1: Absolutely. So I come at this from two perspectives. The, the first is on the same page, 100%, with you, Sarah, and thinking about the downstream consequences from these kind of uh, informed consent, and I'm putting it in quotes, the informed consent uh, releases for data mining or for participation in studies, whatever the the thing may be, or for listening to music, as we know nowadays, you have to check that box. And so I think like Gregor says, there's an information question with respect to what's the quality of the information that the person has. But there's also, as you're saying, Sarah, at the end of the day, it's the person is in that moment. You have to contextualize that decision, how much information they have. In time one, they're not gonna know what in time 10, time 100, what that individual is going to want or what the world will look like. And so there's a certain amount of engineering that might require be required in terms of thinking about the world that they will live in in the future and what they wanna reveal. So I think the problem is we have this notion of informed consent that is really broken and it's always been broken and it doesn't work well when we're talking about really intimate technology and intimate information. The second piece and the kind of other side of that though is this notion of publicity and the role of publicity in shifting norms, exactly what Gregor was saying, the need to have this social, these external from the technology changes that have to happen and part of that is if things are kept private if it's if, if this information is seen solely as an individual uh, item of data as opposed to something that could change social norms more broadly then the conversation about privacy takes a different form you see that there's a public value in sharing that you have you are a user of this technology the the models who walk the runways who have prosthetics now they're walking with prosthetics. One might say, "Well, they're basically using this to fit into whatever norm of beauty and fashion exists." But there's another perspective where they don't always use it, and they're being interviewed or they're having conversations. And so there's a, a there's an aspect of um, really challenging those norms uh, in different settings that if that wasn't revealed if the fact that that individual used a prosthetic was not something that was publicly shared that you wouldn't have the opportunity for public contestation about what is beautiful what is a norm and so the example i gave is intentionally problematic with respect to fashion and (laughs) and the modeling industry but in part it's there to set up this tension between the need to have these public conversations about beauty about body uh, diversity, neurodiversity, and the technology that may be designed to help conform and hide those disabilities. That is really interesting. It makes me think there's always
2: a different conversation depending on who the audience is, right? There's a a time when the fitting the norm seems right and progressive and a time when pushing back on it and those can be different times for the same person. Ricardo, do you have something you want to add in here on privacy, just thinking about privacy? Because I want to move us to thinking about privacy, especially um, when we think about emerging neurotechnologies that include AI, you know, machine learning that can do even more data mining in Jasmine's language than than more traditional models.
0: Yes. Uh... Regarding privacy, I, I think that on one hand, neurotechnologies can pave the way to have access to information that we couldn't do uh, until now. And this may extend the, the definition of privacy that we may have. Um, however, despite this change on the scope of what privacy may, may become with the advent of more efficient neurotechnologies, I think the public discussion and the public behavior regarding privacy may not be changed drastically by that fact. I think they I see it likely that we we see that as an extension of what we have right now from a, a world where the the definition of what is private and it is public has been more fluid in the last um, in the last years with uh, the advent of new of new technologies and I guess this may seem, may be perceived by by a significant part of the population as an extension of this uh, this evolution of privacy and uh, and in in the perception of, the, of about privacy i'm not entirely sure that we have a generational a generational divide um, in what is uh, on on how much people care about what they 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 publish for instance in social media i guess the the divide is mostly that uh, People of my generation and older, they posted in Facebook and younger, they posted in TikTok, but they are both probably sharing way more than um, people would have considered uh, necessary probably a decade ago. So I, I'm not entirely sure that there is this divide, but there are different perceptions of what this privacy means. And and I guess the, um, there are different reasons why the, this definition of what is public or private has has changed. One one of them is that uh, there is, of course, less clarity about what they are consenting to and what can be done with um, with that information. And another aspect is the actual cost of not sharing that data. What I am being excluded of in terms of services, in terms of interactions, in terms of benefits or social benefits. in a in a a broader sense uh that if i if i'm not participating in this um in this sharing then i am somehow excluded from certain parts of the of the workings of society as of today and this if we think about um, people with disabilities uh, or uh, the the use of um, neurotechnologies for assistive technologies for instance this may lead to cases where there can be a certain coercion to uh, have their, their data accessible if not necessarily publicly at least to the people who are providing these systems just because that's uh, if we link the the fact that these technologies will work based with, with algorithms that would like to gather data then they may pay a you have a higher cost of saying, I am abstain from using the systems. And therefore, I, if I I don't accept to share the data, but I don't get the benefits of such technologies. And this can be one of the aspects that, that can be particularly um, important to look at on defining how this technology should be defined, what are the, the safeguards that can be built in, in the technology we think about. Uh, Areas like privacy by design uh, in the in the development of um, of the interfaces or the algorithms if it is something that we agreed as a society that is that should be done at, in a in a general way and it doesn't come with the cost of systems that have uh, less performance than those that are more uh, data hungry. Yeah, that's really helpful. I... When I think about
2: that, though, some of it sounds like something that, you know, done well could be built into the device. But some of it, going back to Gregor's point, not everything is about the technology, right? Might be about setting up, you know, we were talking before international agreements, laws, norms of practice, things that we agree upon beyond a a very small community to try to protect some of the values that I think come from retaining privacy around our most intimate thoughts and activities and preferences and right again even though each of us in the moment and less fully aware of how that data gets used might be inclined to just click yes I agree we're going to need some broader um way to address this value and you know what is the way that we um approach that, given what we've said so far as, you know, in this conversation about trying to diversify the research team, this isn't really just for the research team anymore. Ricardo, do you want to jump back in?
0: Yes, I think this is this is very important, that, that here we are going beyond what a specific research team can do and, and what technology can indeed do. So technology is one element of the puzzle, but we cannot expect... A piece of technology to to change the way society has approached uh, disability has created barriers for for people with disabilities, and and what we are talking here is more what are the, the mechanisms uh, I would like to call them governance mechanisms that can be envisioned to steer neurotechnologies in a way that uh, can uh, can Promote the, the respect of the privacy, the respect of the human dignity, and be as inclusive and diverse as possible. And um, and there, there are different elements that um, that need that need to be taken into account. Uh, and these are, for instance, there is this issue of whether the whether the there is a need to uh, re- revisit the human rights to. Uh, to ensure that the threats that uh, can be generated by neurotechnologies are also considered in these human rights, for instance, in the case of uh, of privacy, in the case of integrity uh, of uh, of humans. There are other. These are solutions that come more from a societal agreement on international norms, and this 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 uh, is a process where we will need to define what are the boundaries. Uh, that we we are we accept in in this particular case of privacy on the type of information that can be extracted uh, from um, from recordings of the, of the brain or by the combination of such recordings with other types of information. Uh, so this is one element of the entire puzzle. But I I also think that this work that we do in terms of international agreements, in terms of general frameworks that uh, can be based on human rights, they all need to be as well supported by uh, specific uh, mechanisms to make them enforceable. And this goes through on one hand there, of course, the regulatory aspects and legal aspects. On the other hand, we also have the um, elements of the the technical development through standards and through techniques but there is an, a very important aspect that that uh, shouldn't be neglected and is that to increase the awareness of the entire society about these issues uh, because otherwise we cannot really uh, be sure that we are talking about the same things and we can end up with a legislation or norms that are very well suitable on paper but uh, they are they don't really reflect the realities of the society jasmine you want to add anything there
1: well i was nodding specifically about the point of legislation or any framework or standards are only as good as the people who are going to be interpreting and enforcing them and so we go back. We're somewhat going in in the circle. We're back to who are the who are the people who are on the front lines. And when you talk about AI in particular, when you're thinking about algorithms and algorithmic biases, it really matters who's designing, who's doing the coding, who's doing the quality checks, who's doing the monitoring. And so I'm thinking about this from a legal perspective, and and the kind of public deference to algorithms and machine learning is becoming increasingly clear in courtrooms, in many spaces in which law is made, interpreted and enforced. And so I think this goes to Ricardo's point as well in terms of public awareness. There's not this widespread skepticism in society about the algorithm itself. And we see that play out. We being um, lawyers, we'll see that play out in courtrooms, where you know, as a matter of evidence, as a matter of uh, you know, did this happen for purposes of of personal injury or liability? I think that that type of um, reverence to the machine technology is dangerous. And so, you know, I think when we're talking about equity and access and Particularly how it affects people with disabilities, we have to think about, you know, the downstream. What's going to happen when these things get litigated? If there's a problem, how are we going to understand the technology itself, or, or the lack of understanding is a better way to say it? Indeed.
2: So how do how do encourage widespread skepticism, or at least healthy
3: skepticism, Gregor? Uh, or you? No, no, I don't want to do that. Um... But, I mean, as we're talking, this is not about privacy, because I think now we moved into biases, I think, right, when with AI and, and I think there one of the issues is that the coder often does not have, right, the AI can only be as good as the data it gets fed, whether it's a school, I mean, because machine reasoning the data is supposed to be automatic it learns by itself if you have to feed it constantly that is very inefficient and so the machine reasoning can only be as good and the machine learning can only be as good as the data it's get and of course we know that the data is biased if you look at the literature around disabled people on any given topic from emergency management to whatever which angle it's for the most part the medical angle, not the social angle. And if the machine is only sucking in all the info, right? And then it comes out with, well, disabled people within a medical framework because that is the majority of, of data out there. And I mean, wasn't it um, that there was this HR which they had to scrap because it was biased against women, right? And that was very lucky also because, I mean, the machine can be only as good, and and the output, the AI machine, as what data it gets. And our our data is definitely very biased, right? Definitely in regards to disabled people, that's actually a big EDI issue. That we, I mean, talking all about, I mean, disabled people in, right, how many are in a lab or so on. But the research questions funded are definitely very uneven in regards to disabled people, which question right gets funded. The medical one gets much more funded than the social. Right. And the AI, therefore, right, is there and therefore has a problem because the, the 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 quality of the data is just not good enough. And the coder very likely will not know it because most coders, I mean I would assume, are not very familiar with all the social aspects around But right? if you code for example for emergency management. I'm not so sure people know what um, what kind of social issues disabled people face in relation to heat waves or flooding or, right? So so with other words, the coder has to find, one has to find to well that the coder can learn about their own lack of knowledge or where the gap is, which then automatically leads them to bias. They are not doing it on purpose when they code, right? They're just, I mean, as so many of, when we interview people, they say, well, I don't know what I don't know, right? And I tell my students that all the time. That's right. You don't wake up in the middle of the night and have an epiphany about, I never known that one. I mean, you have to be exposed to something, and then you can say, oh, I have never known that. But if you're never ex- exposed to it, and that's a curriculum issue, that's, a, right? that's an issue of what is taught in, in universities, what is the coder, for example, exposed to. Did the coder ever learn about disabled people and the social on certain topics, which he then could use in order to, when he starts the coding? Right? And that's, I mean, again, it goes far beyond what the technology people can do. That's really again how you bring everything together within the educational framework. So people know all kinds of things. And for coding, it's definitely important beyond that. Of course, sometimes you want to code in a biased way, like health insurance. Right. And then, there, because of priority, uh, proprietary, they don't even want to show you the uh, right. I mean, the, the algorithm, right? They use, um, but often it's totally unintended. It's simply based on that they didn't know, and then they built the machine right? Reasoning in ways that, I mean, it led to certain bias outcome.
1: Yeah. Jasmine, do you want to jump in? Sure. I think that's certainly true that there's a certain um, uh, ignorance that, that is not intentional there. and And you don't want to fault the coder for things that the coder doesn't know. But at the same time, you kind of do. You want to fault the coder, maybe not the individual coder, but you want to tackle the structures that led to that coder not understanding the social aspects and not understanding that disability has to be part of what uh, coder bias and then subsequent data bias might look like. And so, you know, when we see this, and, and I think you're right, Gregor, you see this in the educational realm in medical schools. Well, you know, the way that disability has always been taught has been as an outcome as opposed to as a demographic or something that is uh, part and parcel of identity and who the individual is. Once that started to, to change and it's, it's still not where it needs to be, but the courses and the curriculum have changed. So disability has become an actual required course in some spaces. And I can speak to the law school you know, it's it's becoming, it's not required, <laughs> but it is becoming a part of what is required to change the structural problems. And so when I say the individual coder, maybe we should hold them responsible, I'm not talking about from a liability perspective, I'm talking about it from more of a structural perspective where at some point we need to step in and say, this is how you fix the coder's knowledge. And this is the only way that that's going to happen. So so I do think that, uh, you know, that that is important. And the other example I just wanted to give quickly is we've seen this in the context of the online bar exam for legal licensing. And we've seen it recently in the last year, year and a half where the the, the algorithms and the coding that go into some of the security technology have misread, uh, let's say, students who are neuro neurodiverse, and some of their facial expressions or some of the kind of non typical movements have been flagged as cheating, have been flagged as problematic, and you know this has led to, I mean, confusion is is um, really n- not the app word here, but but the point is is that you see this playing out. And like you said, Gregor, there is a distinction between coder and the data that goes into it. But I do think we should really strive to have more of a structural solution that, at the end of the day, will trickle down and hold the coder to a certain degree of responsibility for, for what's coded. Ricardo, do you want to jump in on this
0: point? Yes, I think, uh, yeah, I agree with uh, most of things that have been mentioned before. I wanted to add uh, the importance of narrative about AI where we have this um, we, we have positioned uh, as a community the algorithm as the as the master of the decisions. but in reality what we have is a series of processes that take the output of this algorithm and someone or some uh, some mechanism is made to make the final decision. No, nobody is forced to uh, believe in blind faith in the of the algorithm. And when we think on the way that these systems have been put in place, we have this element that they are based on the data, the data is biased, but currently there is a heavy work of manual processing of the data before, it is um, actually put into the training set for the algorithm. There's a lot of manual labor that goes into there. And this is a process in which some of these biases could have been detected uh, or could have been assessed in order to, to have a better estimation of how fit for purpose that particular algorithm is. And, uh, and this goes to the other aspects. Once I have a once I have a system that uh, is based on AI, so what is the what is the reliability that I can attribute to that system? How it has been validated for a particular organization, private or public, to basically deploy it for its use. If we have We have this uh, this, uh, recent example in the UK where algorithms were made to to predict the results of of pupils in their A-levels based on the historical records that uh, yielded results that have a very clear bias based on the postal codes where people from certain areas uh, were given lower grades than they would have normally obtained. And this was, of course, based on these biases that we can. We may say these biases were on the data, but someone basically gave the green light for this system to be used for that purpose. And we shouldn't forget that because we there is not obligation for adopting technology. And I'm not saying that uh, that AI is bad. I, I actually I I'm a lead one national uh, well, international network on AI research, because I think there is a lot of value there. But we shouldn't take it as a grant value that it should be deployed just for the sake of it. So there are now some some efforts on setting mechanisms for validation and for governance of AI. It is still a work in progress, but I think it's, import- it's important for us as a society to to remember that we we still hold the power over the algorithm, when it is deployed, and in which purpose, and how decisions are made, and who can intervene in these decisions, and and as, and as such, we shouldn't take the, the output of an of an algorithm as a as a as a given or something that is is um, should be trusted in with blind faith. But I guess as um, as citizens, we we have the right to have our authorities accountable on explaining why a particular system has been adopted or is being uh, is being accepted for use in certain certain applications that we have may lead to critical decisions. That's really helpful. And
2: I think we're gonna have to wrap up now, but thinking about that important point about not not giving all the power to the algorithm, but thinking about the ways that it is then the information provided by it is then implemented into the world, never mind the training sets and other things that inform its learning. Um, Those are human-directed activities, and we started off the hour thinking about um, how we make these human-directed activities more inclusive, more diverse, more capable of producing something that is um, possibly universally designed, that is more that is open to a wider variety of abilities rather than a very narrow vision of what abilities are expected uh, that can exclude many people disabled and otherwise. Um, I guess as a last practical question, because hopefully we'll have people from the International Neuroethics Society community listening in here, as well as others. You know, what what do you think are some of the things that the neuroethics field or community, which includes such a wide variety of people from philosophers, to engineers, to neuroscientists, to uh, you know physicians and others, um, social scientists, what, what should be important steps, next steps in uh, trying to do better in the field of incorporating perspectives of disabled people and or of ability studies, as Gregor importantly pointed
3: out? What I'm trying in the moment, I'm developing as part of my right, certain um, AI grants, um, which uses machine reasoning in Bayesian uh, belief networks. Um, I'm developing self-assessment tools. In the moment, like surveys. I mean, simply where I mean, simply by reading through it, how you would answer it, that you can already, as for example, a coder right, that they would see, okay, I would never have thought about that within that framework. And, I, right, so, and just give them things and, right, so that, I mean, they can see where the gap is. One can give this to every student, literally, who starts university, right? Give them a set of, and say, okay, would you know, of course, in, in, your, in, in a certain degree, because a philosopher needs a different one, right, than an engineer. Because I mean, right, the, the, the purpose is different, but I think I mean, passive self assessment tools, right, where just, no one has to be involved, you just give it to them and that them by just going through it, I think would be one tool, um, to at least, I mean, and for people make visible what they know or don't know. Um, that's what we are trying, and we are, I mean, right in the moment, I mean, trying out whether that really is useful. Um, Right, that would be one thing, but I mean, somehow one has to find that people, right, understand what they, why their, where their own gap is, without us blaming them, so if you do it by yourself, then you get the aha moment, and right, and it's still private, so no one blames you for whatever, I mean, there is. Yeah, I
2: think go philosophers here, because philosophers are great at pointing out that we think we know things that we don't have very good justifications for, or we're we're less aware of what we don't know, I guess I should say, or at least um, shaking up that foundation a little bit. Jasmine, do you want to jump in next?
1: Just with a quick point that I would say it doesn't have to be as overwhelming or as Herculean a task as we may think it really, I think, goes to Gregor's point about it being local. So there are ways in which, depending on the discipline you're in, and it actually doesn't matter what discipline you're in, but finding a way to incorporate critical disability perspectives. And, you know, as Gregor says, he would frame it as ability studies. And, you know, I think that's somewhat of a difference. I'm I'm advocating a a disability-centered approach but I think that can be done in ways, let me give you an example, in the law school, in the law context, there's uh, an intro program for incoming students, where you have a week of critical perspectives. Now, it's not enough, in my, in my opinion, but you get a look at the various areas of law that have excluded particular critical Uh, perspectives and you say okay if you were to look at this from a disability studies perspective how would that change your understanding of the law and so by just infusing that critical lens and building that critical toolbox for students that as Gregor says it's that aha moment that comes in a non judgmental way it's universally designed so it doesn't have to be something that is going to petition to the UN although I I'm with Ricardo, let's go and petition to the UN as well for standards and enforcement norms, etc. But there are ways that our disciplines can can get started on this. And so I think this is a very practical way to do that. Fantastic. And Ricardo?
0: Yes, I, I think the previous ideas are, are great. And, and they actually nail a point that I think is very important, is that exposure can really open new perspective for the practitioners. I, I have worked with many researchers, and and I cannot see, say, bad faith, but I see a lot of blind spots. And I guess exposure can, uh, can help us open these blind spots. On, on another aspect that's important, I, I'm pretty much goal-oriented to really try to identify what are the, the purposes that this technology should, should provide. And I think for all the people who are involved in the scientific uh, and technological development of these technologies, it would be very important to to position themselves on the timeline in which this particular piece of research or technology development will reach the end user. So they identify how early they are or how advanced they are in the maturity of the technology to based on that assessment to be able to say, OK, this is the amount of um, involvement that I need from other stakeholders. And I'm convinced that the stakeholders need to be involved all to, throughout the entire process. But the type of involvement is very different at different stage. And sometimes people just delay that because they say it's too early, and that's probably because they are they are perceiving as uh, a type of involvement that is not well suited by the particular stage of the research that they're doing. And I think having this perspective of how advanced to uh, am I, I can help identify the best ways for engaging with the stakeholders that need to be participating in development. And this involves, of course, the end users, but it ha- it also involves other other sectors. You can involve insurance companies, it can involve policymakers from, to the local government, all the way to international organizations. And the important is that we, can, we, we have this perspective and we know what kind of input, what kind of participation is actually required. And the last part that I would like to add is that we need to really think about a new way to create the incentive structures so that this can be a reality. Otherwise, it will be only wishful thinking if we are not able to mobilize the resources that are required to do this process in a proper way.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so thinking much more broadly and structurally about team science, I think, and about our collective value seems incredibly important. And in figuring out those appropriate structures inv- will have to involve funding if we're really going to make a, a change to. Practices are entrenched, right? They're difficult to change. So you have to direct funding that way. I realize at the end of an interesting hour, we really didn't get to some of the questions about accessibility for particular populations, but we focused more on the kind of political dimensions and the value that's brought in by diversifying um, a, a scientific team and and thinking about these issues more broadly um maybe that's another podcast and i could be your host again um but thank you all so much jasmine ricardo and gregor it's been a pleasure talking with you and i hope we get to do it again soon
3: Uh, thank you for having me
1: thank you sarah thanks everyone ricardo gregor this was wonderful yeah thank you very much conversations have piqued your interest check out the international neuroethics society website where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions speakers from today's episode can be found in the sessions titled minding the gap equity and justice in ai and neurotechnology and depictions of disability and neurotechnology did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic we want to hear from you We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening.